0: It's not every day that I talk to a CPA and auditor who ends up getting into long-term care and never leaves. Michelle Grimolia has a passion uh, for this industry and we got into a subject that I don't often talk about, which is community outreach, community partnerships, community collaboration. She has five different examples of community collaboration and initiatives that she has created, participated, and formed that are really unique We talk about her role and interest in the general store and bringing in a pharmacy, bringing in a primary care doctor, bringing in a local bank branch, a lifetime learning institute, and how she partnered with a different primary care to get vaccines for her independent living residents. I'm certain that you will appreciate Michelle's input and insight into what she's doing in long-term care as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by experience.care the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes. I'm your host, Peter Murphy-Lewis. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and we've got a great episode in store. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Grimolia, President and CEO of Woodland Pond, Michelle took up this position five years ago, but has been around Woodland Pond for the last 11 years, moving from controller to executive director of the premier CCRC in the mid-Hudson Valley to her current position today. Throughout these roles, she's learned lots about successfully managing communities and especially about community collaboration, which we will dive into. Michelle, welcome to LTC Heroes.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So Michelle, I know that we're going to get into a lot of really cool projects. The first time you and I chatted, we were going to talk about transparency. And then I realized that you have this secret passion for community collaboration. So before we get into the professional things that you're doing at Woodland, I want to get to know you a little bit more as a person. So let's start off with the question, Michelle, do you have any uncommon hobbies that you love?
1: Well, I don't know how common this is when I'm not at work. I am spending most of my time when I'm not watching my kids play sports and so forth in my organic garden. And that is where I get all of my soil therapy. I'm in there all the time. It grows every year. Some years it is thriving, some years it's failing, but that is my hobby, which I don't think is normally something for somebody that's middle-aged, but normally maybe older folks or younger folks, but that's my hobby.
0: That's a good one. Is there anything from that hobby that could be translated or that has taught you about other situations or anything in long-term care?
1: Oh yeah, especially the fact that sometimes it's thriving and sometimes it's failing. And 100% something that every year when I get ready to get into my garden in February and March, I always have a great sense of optimism, even though, for example, this year my garden is essentially a failure because we've had so much rain in the Northeast. My garden just can't handle it all. Next year, I know I will go into it as if this year never even happened. And, you know, every day in long-term care can be like that. And especially in a setting like ours that has such a variety of levels of care here at the continuing care retirement community, because one day can be just, the worst that you could have remembered in a long time and you have to dust off and start over again tomorrow and it could literally be the best day you've had equally in a long time so 100 percent the two things are parallel to me
0: that makes sense the connection my last question outside of the industry is what's the last book that you've read that is unrelated
1: to long-term care Believe it or not, it's actually Gone with the Wind. And this was my sixth or seventh time reading it. I read it many times when I was a teenager in early twenties and hadn't read it in a long time. So I picked it up and I read it again. And it's such a classic. I love everything about it and I can just totally get engaged in it. So it was Gone with the Witch.
0: And I know that towards the end of our chat today, I plan to talk about kind of your professional background because I know that you're somewhat of a rookie to long-term care and an odd startup as an auditor and where you come from and consulting before you got in long-term care. But I want to ask this question, even you've been in long-term care a little bit over a decade, what's one thing that you would change about long-term care with the snap of a finger if you could?
1: I think the one thing that I would change would be the funding that's made available for the industry at the, both the federal and state level. As our seniors are continuing to age, But even now, as we are facing just growing challenges with providing care cost effectively, I think that it's an undervalued service in general. You can definitely see a distinction between the organizations that are able to invest their assets into excellent care provision. We are fortunate that we are able to do so at our community, probably more so than others just because of the way the models work in New York State for our type of community. But I look at some of the county, state funded facilities. And all I can think is just, I know they don't have enough to do the kind of care that they want to do. It's not about that the practitioners there are interested in providing substandard care. It's just the resources are limited. So that's the one thing I would change with a snap of a finger if I could.
0: And in your career, what's been the biggest change that you've seen in long-term care?
1: 10 years ago, If you were an administrator in a long-term care facility or in my role as a CEO at a continuing care retirement community, you did not need to be concerned that you would ever have a shortage of a pipeline of staff. People were always wanting to get into providing care in this setting and working in this setting. And that has changed. It's not a sure thing. It's challenging to maintain stable staffing. You're being forced to make decisions about potentially letting someone go that might not be a great fit even despite reinvesting in education and training. So that guarantee of, I know that there will be another LPN behind this one if we have to let this one go, or if this one retires, or an RN or a CNA or a social worker, especially, you just don't have that guarantee anymore. So that's been a significant change that's occurred over the last 11 or 12 years I've been in this field.
0: And lastly, before we jump into your community outreach, is what do you expect to be the next biggest change in long-term care?
1: Well, I mean, to some extent, we're already seeing it. We are seeing that the people that are moving into our communities in every level of care, independent living, assisted living, skilled nursing, everyone is a little bit older and a little bit higher need incrementally every year. So there's an acuity that's getting worse. There's an aging that's getting worse. There's a higher level of care that's needed. So I anticipate that you will see entrepreneurial organizations and forward thinkers trying to figure out a new type of long-term care residential setting that balances what is now becoming a very acute setting for places like Woodland Pond, especially in our skilled nursing unit. More of a focus on growth of, let's say, like more of an assisted living type environment or an independent living type environment with built-in home health care. I can definitely anticipate that changing and happening. People are just waiting until it's almost too late to move into a community like this. They're just coming in older with higher levels of need and and so forth. And I can anticipate that continuing.
0: Great. So let's dive into the topic that I think will be of interest to all of the listeners, which is community collaboration. And I think I should mention, you surprised me when we first chatted because I said, what's something you're really passionate about that you know when you speak to your peers, they ask you about or something that's different—a way that, that you all work at Woodland—and you said community collaboration. And I don't know if you've, I've even heard those two words together. And I've interviewed a lot of CEOs on this podcast, so let's start at the entry level. What does community collaboration mean for you? And given that you have come from different industries before long-term care, how did you start to understand community collaboration at Woodland?
1: So when I refer to community collaboration, or if I think about how Woodland Pond integrates with our community and what that means to me, it forces the recognition that Woodland Pond is the second largest organization in our town, the largest of which is a college campus for the State University of New York here in New Paltz. And that has, you know, sort of a more transient type population, but we're the largest employer. We probably have among the highest gross revenues and and expenditures in a given period of time. We're a resource consumer when it comes to water and sewer and emergency response resources. And so it's always been very important to me that we develop relationships with the leaders and the organizations right here in our actual town, but also in our county and in our region of the Hudson Valley, because we are an impactful organization. So at no time do we ever want to be seen as any kind of a parasitic organization. I want it to be quite the opposite. So it's a symbiotic relationship between Woodland Pond and the community as a whole, beyond just providing care to the the seniors in our area.
0: And you have been at Woodland Pond since its inception, since its construction, correct?
1: Yes. Yep. So,
0: how many years in did you start to realize that the community collaboration was going to be critical, or critical to your leadership? Was it something innate with you that you had from your previous professional career?
1: No, my background, and I know you said we'll talk about it in a bit, but my background is, you know, I have my bachelor's in accounting. I was intending to become, you know, a CPA and do people's taxes for life. I worked in public accounting for seven years in big cities with financial services clients. So in terms of my professional development, I worked in the public, but it was not in any kind of a collaborative way. It wasn't anything really mission-driven or driven by a desire to be a good community partner. I think that I saw the opportunity to start developing Woodland Pond's reputation in that way when I became the executive director here in 2014. That's really when we first started and believe it or not what actually the impetus for this was I decided that I wanted to quantify what kind of impact Woodland Pond has on our community. So I actually created and do this annually now a Woodland Pond Economic and cultural impact study on new Paltz and the surrounding areas. I do that every year. And it focuses on the zip codes that our employees come from, how much spending power our residents are bringing, how much water and sewer we're using in a given year, how many local vendors we're using and what kind of payments were made to them. And we've made that publicly available to the public and also to the municipalities, you know, and that's, that's a tool that helps us to be held accountable. But in that first iteration, I identified that we had come quite a ways but we had more work to do.
0: Is there anything in that first report that you got backlash from or that, I don't want to say embarrassed, but that you used to really challenge you all to get to the next level?
1: Yeah, I think that the biggest takeaway for me in that first report was that with staff being our number one expenditure, whether it be wages and then benefits and salaries, I really wanted to see a greater number of staff dollars that were going out in payroll right here in our actual zip code. So there's a number of zip codes all in our area and many can be within a half an hour's drive. So it's not necessarily far away, but I really felt driven to see those numbers right here in New to go up. So assessing that every year has been extremely interesting and people do look forward to that report going out.
0: And so just highlight some of the programs and community collaboration that I think that we'll dive into, and then I'll ask you kind of what that conversation looks like. I expect we'll talk about how you created a partnership with a local bank, with a Lifetime Learning Institute, a vaccine program for your independent living residents, primary care practice for physicians practice, plus a pharmacy. Before we dive into each one of those, did you have any experience ever doing community collaboration? And what did your first talks look like compared to if you were going to have one in next year for 2022?
1: I didn't have, you know, experience professionally per se, but I think some of this is molded because when I was in high school, I did a co-op with our, lo- our local United Way branch in town. And that being such a community-based organization... I continued my relationship with the United Way for many years into my professional career, becoming a loaned executive and and other roles with the United Way. And although I'm not affiliated with them at all at this time, I think a lot of it came from that. There was a recognition that there are a lot of people that need and can really benefit from a lot of help. And it might come in ways that you don't think about.
0: So let's dive into your program that first struck us interesting was a bank branch. So I have family that's in banking. I've never heard of a long-term care facility reaching out to a bank and saying we want you here and we want you to help can you give me a little bit of the background how that started how long the process took did it take you did you have to knock on 10 different doors for anyone to pay attention to you it seems like while your population might be affluent it seems like a bank is always looking for someone who's going to grow in their wealth and eventually take out loans and residential loans and commercial loans
1: right so I just would like to just couch this by saying that, although most of our residents uh, that come through independent living do have means, uh, Woodland Pond actually also accepts Medicaid in our nursing home. So we have a wide variety of people that are here in different economic situations and also our staff are huge consumers of the bank, but to just speak about that relationship. So we're actually on our second banking partner. We had been with our first for just about 12 years and strategically it was just both of us decided it was time to probably go separate ways. So in looking for the replacement bank this time around, just to give you a picture of what we're talking about, this is a, in our community center, both complete with the roll-down doors and security. There's a vestibule with an ATM in it that's accessible with an ATM card. And then there's the roll-down doors. And then there's a teller's room where they have a safe, you know, only accessible by bank staff, and then a teller seating. We, we're striving to bring banking services into the community. So I had actually been chatting with an acquaintance of mine from where I live. And she's a banking professional with a, a mid-sized bank here in our area. I think they have five or six branches. And we were chatting about the changing needs of the, the residents and the banking industry. And essentially what that ended up turning into was we put out a request to five banks, one of which was our big commercial bank, MT, and then four regional banks. So just local bank branches here in the Hudson Valley that might have a couple of branches. I think one was publicly held, but the rest were just locally owned, longtime businesses. And all five were given an opportunity to Respond to the RFP and ultimately we selected the bank that we did and they actually are slated, they're doing all their construction work now, but they're slated to open their branch in a week or two. So we're very excited and they will offer all of banking services to the residents, to our staff that want to participate they will have safe deposit boxes here on campus which is new, the prior relationship didn't have that. And every day the residents are coming and saying, when is the bank coming? When is the bank coming? It's convenient. You know, our employees can bank there. They can do their Christmas clubs. They can do different things. And it's been a great partnership. And this particular bank did not have any branches here in New So strategically, this allows them to expand. And incidentally, this branch is open to the public. So when they are here with tellers, the public can come in and utilize the banking services. So. There's an opportunity for the bank to expand its footprint from a corporate perspective, but also to provide a convenience to our staff and residents. The more we can offer them here on campus, the richer their lives really will be.
0: Were there any obstacles or difficult conversations that you and the bank had to negotiate or talk through as this project came to fruition?
1: So one of the things that is sort of pervasive in New York State, even in situations like this, is that the um, there's a lot of regulatory oversight. So we know our whole world of regulations and what we would need to do to make any kind of a relationship like this proceed. What I did not realize, and we as an organization and then our board of directors did not realize until midway through the process was the New York State Department of Financial Services actually had to review an application for this bank to open a branch here. And they needed to be able to demonstrate a whole series of banking regulation compliance that we then had to work through. So that was a whole new aspect of things. And although it didn't derail anything, it did definitely delay the process, probably three months longer than we were hoping.
0: Great. Let's talk about another project. I think let's move to, you refer to it as a delivery pharmacy option that's along with a general store. Is that an accurate description? Can you tell me a little bit about the background and how that came about?
1: Sure thing. So when Woodland Pond opened, we've got About 350 residents altogether and about 300 staff. And in the community building of our independent living section of the community, the building had opened with a resident volunteer run. It was called the Market Basket. They were open a couple of days a week. It sold candy bars and greeting cards and so forth. At the same time, every day, the local family owned pharmacy in town now we do, of course, we have CVS and Rite Aids, but this particular family owned pharmacy that has been in our area for many generations um, and provides most of our residents with their prescriptions in independent living, every day they were sending a courier over and dropping at our unsecured concierge desk brown paper bags with prescriptions in them. And it occurred to me several years ago that that probably was not the best idea, particularly in that we know that a lot of seniors get narcotic prescriptions. The concierge desk is not, as I said, it's unsecured. I mean, there's doors, but they're not routinely locked except at night and they weren't taking these medications and putting them in any kind of a safe. So they'd sit on the back counter. It just seemed like it was way too inviting for somebody that might you know, have an addiction issue or be tempted to try to take medications, anybody. It could have been a family member, a staff member, somebody in off the street coming into the bank. And you would only have to watch this activity for a few days to realize this happens every day. See the guy with the brown bags coming and there's meds in there. So knowing that I thought we had an opportunity here, I to our board of directors, the idea that if we could partner with the owner of that pharmacy to staff and staff a satellite branch of their pharmacy here on campus, that we Woodland Pond would allocate limited capital dollars to build out the space for what they would need. So we took the risk on the capital build out. The pharmacy took the risk on staffing and inventory. And now it's a match made in heaven. It's open six days a week with their staff. There's not a pharmacist here, but it's otherwise a full drugstore. You can get any kind of over the counter medication, your incontinence products, cutest gifts you've ever seen. It's a gift shop. We still have the candy bars, we still have the potato chips. And now the prescriptions come in with the store operator. They're in a secure setting. They come pick things up every day. And to tell you that this particular pharmacy is unbelievable customer service, our residents can call or come down and ask the woman that runs the store most of the days, I'm really looking for this product or this flavor of this medication or whatever. The next day, she's carting in the stuff from the main store. They're just unbelievably accommodating, and it's just been such a win-win.
0: Were there any hiccups in the negotiation or the build-out or in the opening?
1: So one of the challenges in this case was trying to figure out, and we faced the same thing with the bank, but we by this time we had kind of worked through it with the pharmacy, was determining what the fair market value of rent should be. Because when it was our volunteer-run candy shop, basically, it, there wasn't an issue about rent. But in knowing not-for-profit organization, we'd be very careful about unrelated business income and just we needed to be really careful about that. So we did, of course, engage with legal counsel to review first our memorandum of understanding. And then ultimately, we both agreed to an initial five-year lease agreement, and we're going to be coming up on that five years in a year or two. So we had to negotiate that and kind of figure out those nuances and then figuring out things similar with the bank. Whose space is it? Whose responsibility is it to ensure reliable internet, phone service? who's responsible for security at where does the responsibility for Woodland Pond start and stop? Where does the responsibility for the organization start and stop? But in all of these cases, it's the same thing with the bank. They're providing the staff, they're providing the equipment and so forth. So it's real, we're just providing the space. So it's a sharing of responsibility. And I think that's just talks to the collaborative part of these relationships.
0: My assumption is that these types of partnerships and collaboration require a fair amount of time from you at the beginning when you are mapping it out, when you're planning it, when you're negotiating, you're getting to know your partner. How long does it take from when you first decide, oh, let's have this conversation to the day that it opens?
1: Period of time-wise, in each case, from the first conversation to when the actual venue is going to be open, I would say is probably between 12 and 18 months from that very first conversation all the way until you're actually operational. That's been our experience actually with all of these community partnerships that we might talk about today, with the exception of the one with the vaccines, that was really quick. The rest I would anticipate, you need at least 12 to 18 months.
0: And are you heavily involved in the first month or so, and then it gets moving and you can pass it off to someone on your team who can make sure and they just check in with you?
1: Now, because we have a very small administrative staff. We are really focused on putting as many dollars into programming activities and staff. So I have a very lean executive team. I don't have an executive assistant by choice and my department heads are busy. They're working department heads. So when I decide to take on a project, my management style For something like this is that if I'm saying this might be a good idea for Woodland Pond to look into, I know I'm committing myself to the time commitment. Now, of course, I get help from my staff on certain things, maintenance, finance, environmental services, concierge services, etc. But if I'm going to dip our toe into something new and a kind of unknown, I feel that it's appropriate for me to hang on to it until it comes to fruition.
0: And the example of the vaccine program that you created for your independent living residents, can you tell me why you had to turn to a primary care health center to help you with that? And how fast were you able to pull that off? How did you find the partner? What were the problems? Why did they say yes? This episode was brought to you by experience.care. Experience Care is a provider of world-class EHRs that alleviate the pain of disorganization in your facility. Its dashboard is designed to minimize confusion and maximize productivity. Experience Care is designed for CEOs that care about their CNAs and their residents alike. Visit experience.care to learn more about the best EHR in the market.
1: So this was an interesting and, and sort of organic and definitely unplanned relationship. So in December and January, when the vaccines began to roll out, New York State, we were able to participate in the federally supported programs for getting our health center residents, so assisted living residents and skilled nursing residents vaccinated through and staff through, in our, in our case, at the CVS Pharmacy. They sent the personnel, the government basically told us, this is how you're going to do it, just tell us how many vaccines you need, we'll send the personnel, so that was all taken care of. But then I had 250, 260 independent living residents and approved private duty companions that were coming in doing work here with residents every day that had no access to vaccines, because at that point in time, physicians did not have, individual physicians really didn't have access to much vaccine. We, as a community at that time, were not approved to be a purveyor of vaccines. So we had no idea what we were gonna do to get our residents vaccinated. And I happened to be at a hockey game with another hockey mom, and she's the practice manager for a physician's practice here in New Paltz. They've got 30 something locations all the way from Manhattan up to the Hudson Valley. And I explained to her what was going on. This was on a Saturday night, on a sunday she texted me and she said i think we can make this happen for you we just got approved to be able to procure vaccines and i as a practice manager she said i will commit to you that i will pay my nurses to come work here on a saturday and sunday when the practice is otherwise closed and if you get your residents here we will vaccinate them we did 260 people in two days by putting individuals on our buses now keep in mind of course it was the middle still the pandemic, so we couldn't load the buses up we had to do safe transportation for two days for the first round and then a month later two days for the second round we had a schedule set out we did not have one appointment missed. we did not have one half an hour time slot go over and they took the risk of paying all their staff of course we bought them lunch but and gave them thank you gift bags but we got anybody that wanted to be vaccinated in independent living or approved caregivers vaccinated
0: That is cool. So the moral of the story is play hockey. Yeah, definitely.
1: (laughs) Definitely play hockey.
0: That is brilliant because the first two examples you gave me started obviously because of a need. There was planning involved. There was requests for proposals. And this one is extremely organic, but happened in 48 hours. That's a really beautiful, beautiful story. I also understand that you have a physician center or primary care center on site on campus. How long has that been there? Has that been there since day one?
1: No. So, well, technically when the building was constructed, and so this is in our health center where skilled nursing and assisted living are located, uh, the building was constructed with a physician's office and two exam rooms with the intention that eventually there might be an opportunity for something like this. And of course, we had a medical director on staff and nursing staff, nurse practitioners to support the skilled nursing environment, of course. But I identified that we really had an opportunity to provide primary care services to our assisted living residents and our independent living residents and any interested staff members. So I began having conversations with the principal of a smaller physicians practice here in our area. So this is not a big box practice. It's smaller even than the the one that we partnered with for the vaccine clinic, although that one's just about five minutes away from here. It was actually centered out of the next town over, but they have all types of practitioners. So they have primary care physicians, practitioners, internal medicine, geriatricians, rheumatologists, a wide variety of things. And those initial conversations I wanted to propose to the principal at that organization. What can we do to collaborate here? And in my head, I have the same model. How can we share the risk? Wilden Pond can provide the space and the customer base, so to speak, or the patient base, but how can I convince this practice manager to take a risk on this because I did not want to hire the physicians, because I did not want to take on the medical malpractice and the billing and everything like that. So how can I convince somebody that's never done anything like this before and has no other existing partnership with Woodland Pond to be willing to take the risk on this? So this one definitely took closer to the 18 to 24 months timeframe to establish. But ultimately what it ended up being is this physician practice employs an MD and a nurse practitioner and several days per week, they utilize the exam space that we provide them. We hired an LPN to support their physician practice. So the LPN is on our books. She also does our employee health because as I said, we try to keep our staff lean where we can. That practice pays us rent for the time that their practitioners are here and they provide the primary care and they do all the billing. And again, they employ the doctor and the nurse practitioner. So that's been about two years that we've had that up and running and always looking for opportunities to expand that as well.
0: And what was the slowest part of that process and that negotiation, the risk related to their expenses and payroll?
1: More so they needed to ramp up their own practice in terms of nurse practitioners, because that was something that was really interesting to both of us. They were already pursuing adding nurse practitioners into their mix. And we definitely wanted a nurse practitioner option. So they needed to actually recruit nurse practitioners and we initially had one that they brought on board that worked for a short time and then for personal reasons she got out of the field and so we're on our second it's really more physician recruitment was what kind of delayed this a little bit so that's been another very organic and I think we're the only kind of organization around that's doing it in this way
0: and in, in terms of the duration of the contractual agreements with the physician center with the pharmacy and the general store and also the bank are these contracts that are three years? Are they five years? Are they 10 years? What do those look like?
1: So the pharmacy or slash drugstore and the bank, we're doing five-year terms. The physician practice, it's actually month to month for the rental of the space. So we do know that there's a risk that if they decide that this is not you know cost-efficient or making sense for them financially, that they may stop providing those services here on campus. But the backup plan is that they do have, obviously, a practice the next town over. So we can always transport in our vehicles for residents that want to stay in their physician practice. So there's a little bit more risk on that, but we also recognize that their staffing is fluid. So if they have a nurse practitioner that picks up new patients and all of a sudden she gets wooed away to another practice or to, or he gets wooed away to the hospital setting or whatever, it just allows us a little bit more flexibility and the ability to pivot and be prepared mm-hmm. for if this doesn't work out, what are we going to do for plan B?
0: Great. Thank you for sharing that. Michelle, I'm certain that the next community collaboration, which has to do with the Life Learning Institute that you have in a relationship with another university, is Easy PR. But before we go into Easy PR, because it's just when I say Life Learning, you had my attention. I'm like, this is really cool. When you told me some of your residents even teach courses, you had me, this is a go. But the other collaborations you've mentioned might not be quite as sexy for the community the bank, the primary care, the general store, but you and I know that they're having an impact on your residents. How do you get that messaging out so your community knows that this is not only great for your residents, but it's great for the community?
1: So we are very, very involved in so many aspects of life here in New Paul. So it starts with even the youngest people in our community. We are the first employer for many New Paul's high school students, many SUNY New Paul students while they're here. We have many and have had in the past at least three, as many as four or five of our volunteer board members at any given time are either on the faculty of staff at SUNY New Paul. We integrate with the local law enforcement at New Paul's police department, to run, you know, tactical training drills here on campus. We open our campus to them for training. They in kind help our residents to be prepared for any kind of incidents of concern. Exactly the same thing with the local fire department. Exactly the same thing with the rescue squad. The bulk of our remaining board members come from right from this area. Most are small business owners or in private business. And it's just really about Making ourselves available and the mayor of New Paltz and the town supervisor of the town of New Paltz, knowing that they can call us if they have a resource issue. We have space here. So sometimes they have to have a wide scale community meeting with maybe the local emergency responders or emergency preparedness team, which sends people from all the different organizations. We make our space available. Holding blood drives, doing things for the community. Um, as I said, we do not want to be parasitic on our community at all. We want people to take as much of our resources as we can, and it's it truly about like just gumshoe type outreach. I have got all of the leaders of all those organizations are on my phone on speed dial. They have my cell phone numbers. They don't look at Woodland Pond like it's just some private business nursing home long term care facility. They see us as being someone that they can reach out to for any myriad number of things. And I think it's just all come to be over the years. It's really a fantastic feeling.
0: Given your population is so transient in the Hudson Valley, is it take twice the amount of effort for you and your team to make sure you all are integrated with the community and they know who you are and what you're doing?
1: A lot easier to deal with now 10 years or 12 years into it than when we first arrived on the scene. We spent the first easily four to five years of our life span educating this mid Hudson Valley region of what a continuing care retirement community is. There are only 12 such communities that are licensed like ours here in New York state. And so this consumer population had absolutely no idea what the model is, what we could provide, So initially, we had to just educate, educate, educate on what the actual concept was. Mm -hmm. Since then, people really understand it, I think. So it's it's gotten a lot easier over the years.
0: And speaking of education, that leads me into the last community collaboration before I want to talk about your professional development before you got into long-term care, which is a life learning institute. I feel that some people might have a pseudo life learning institute that they say that is operating I have a sense that yours really works, that you have residents who are active, you have active students, you have active resident teachers. Can you tell me about how long it's been around and also what it entails?
1: So the Lifetime Learning Institute is a non-credit course offering program that's actually designed and administered by the State University of New Paltz here in town. And many years ago, really as far back as I can remember, Woodland Pond has been the location for many of their courses. So we have a smart classroom, conference rooms, other community spaces that the Lifetime Learning Institute, they take the registrations for the courses, and then they send their instructors here, or oftentimes our residents are the instructors, but again, all coordinated through SUNY New And the courses are here two semesters a year, and they're on all kinds of topics. They could be on Italian wines, or they could be on introduction to Spanish, or it could be on a topic related to history. It's kind of like, I remember getting from our local community college, you'd get a booklet that said you can be CPR certified in six weeks or a child babysitter or whatever. Same exact concept, but the community can come in and take their classes here at our location. So they're getting an introduction to Woodland Pond and seeing that we're much more than what you may think of. And our residents get an opportunity to just basically pull on a pair of jeans and come downstairs or from their apartment or cottage home and take a class in something that they might've been thinking about wanting to do for a long time. And as I said, many have taught them. So again, it's a shared responsibility. And I think that's the pervasive theme here is that Woodland Pond is not doing all of the work, but we're benefiting from it in a symbiotic way. So mm. it's really, it's just fantastic.
0: So. Michelle, I know as an accountant, you have some very clear key performance indicators. How do you define success for your Life Learning Institute and also the other programs that we've chatted about?
1: Well, I think with the Lifetime Learning Institute, we don't have a contract with them per se. So I measure our success with that program in do they call us to come back the following semester? And I think that that's the best indicator because they've got other options. They could bring all the the courses onto their campus if they wanted to. So in that case, it's sort of like positive reinforcement, I would say, is how we know. And knowing that they're having full classes and that the people that are coming, you can tell that they're engaged. You know, Each semester, they have a brunch or a lunch to wrap up the semester. And you just see a room. Our dining room is just absolutely filled with people from the community, our residents. They have all their courses come and have that end of the semester brunch or lunch. And And I know that if they're calling us for the next semester, that means we must've done a good job last time. So that's in that case, you know, kind of how we can measure that.
0: I'm gonna interrupt because when you say that, I think that that's a great KPI. And I know as my previous life, I was a professor for about 12 years and my favorite students, while they were not senior citizens, my favorite citizens were that kind of returning mom at the age of 40 or 45 years old, or early retired dad, like 50 or 55. And those were the best students. So I can understand why your university would want to stay working with your institute. Sorry for the interrupt.
1: No, that's fine. And I mean, I would say that the bulk of our lifetime learning institute learners are probably between ages 50 and maybe 65, 75. So it sounds like it's not a dissimilar demographic. But that's definitely one of the ways that we would measure, I think, all of these relationships to the extent that these organizations want to continue to collaborate is just really positive reinforcement.
0: And so lastly, Michelle, to wrap things up to tie yourself to long-term care, how did you get into long-term care?
1: So as I said, I had graduated with a vision that I was going to be a CPA and, you know, do people's taxes for life. And so I was in public accounting for seven years. I worked in Boston and then in Albany, New York here and did that for seven years. The money was amazing. The workload was horrendous, but normally people do three years and then they're out. And I was proud of myself to getting to seven. But once I got to seven, I knew that this was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And as I tell people at New Employee Orientation here, if you don't know anything about auditing, it's exactly what it sounds like. And you're spending your day just checking other people's work all day long. And it just wasn't appealing to me. So I ended up, my husband and I had gotten married and we had a baby. And while I was on maternity leave, I was looking for some other opportunities. And it turned out that the healthcare organization that was our original sponsor was building the CCRC. And when I was an auditor, I had a CCRC client's so I knew the CCRC financial model, which is extremely unique in terms of the you know, declining balances and the contracts and all that kind of stuff. And I applied for the position and the CFO at the time said, I've never met anybody that even has heard of a CCRC. So he said, I don't know how, exactly how I'm going to use you, but I'm bringing you on. And from that point on, I was involved in the construction side budgeting and was here the day that we opened the door. So that's how I ended up getting involved. And it is just such a dream. I can't imagine being in another field.
0: And you've lasted longer than you did as an accountant and auditor. What was the biggest shock for you that first year or the first couple months?
1: It took us some time to get our feet under us. We actually opened in 2009 when the housing market was totally imploded. And it was expected that we were supposed to probably be able to fill in maybe 24 months. It ended up taking us five years. So those first five years were challenging because we just, we weren't full. Mm. Um, So we're trying to provide all of the services that we are so committed to doing, but without the full revenue coming in. So those first five years were challenging. And that's when I was in the financial role here at the community. And I think once I became the executive director and then subsequently the CEO, once we separated from our healthcare uh, parent company, so we're standalone now. I think the most astounding thing to me is that when I tell you that this is a dream job and I love my job every day, That astounds me. I would have never expected to love being in senior living. It is such a rewarding, but so challenging, such a challenging job, but it's so rewarding. And I think that is what surprised me the most. I kind of expected that I would go to work, collect a paycheck like I did when I was an auditor, be proficient at it because I knew some of the business, but I never expected this to fill up my life in the way that it has.
0: And the next question is kind of an an odd one, but if your ownership came to you and said, We need to cut back on your hours. And he said, well, I'll do this hour for free because it's what I love most. What does that hour in your week consist of?
1: The times that I don't have something on my schedule and a resident knocks on the door and says, can I come in and have a visit? And I have no idea what it's about. And we end up talking for an hour about whatever's on their mind, whatever's on my mind. And it always ends with a hug. And the hug is not because it's my thing. It's because we both feel like a hug is in order. Hmm. And I would give a million of those hours with the hugs at the end for free. And so as you can imagine, COVID was very challenging because our Hmm. residents have come to expect those hugs and so do I, and I need them and so do the residents and we couldn't do it during COVID. So now everybody's excited. You know, We have almost 100% vaccination rate among residents. And so there's a lot more hugging going on, but it would definitely be those hours that end with the hugs.
0: I know this isn't a visual medium. This is a podcast, but hearing you say that makes my eyes water up and tear up. That inspires me. And I also love working in this industry. If this is kind of the last question that I'm going to ask you before we start to close up, and it's we've really, really covered some really cool community collaboration projects. If you were to be a keynote speaker on community collaboration or write up a manual for whoever's to follow you in in your footsteps, what are the, Two or three or four things that are most important to get at the high level and get them right to make it successful the way that you have at Woodland Palm?
1: I would say that the the number one thing that you can do to make this successful is to engage all of the stakeholders at every step in the process, not necessarily giving them voting powers or, or authority over the process itself, but notifying of what's going on it really talks to the transparency of things and like any other society like any other community rumors can run rampant in ccrcs and they do so as you go through any type of a collaboration like this especially if it's something that's new i would say disclose 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 let people ask their questions be transparent with anything that you can even if it's not the best news unless it's obviously confidential or there could be a legal issue But be prepared to discuss your decision-making process, why you've come to the conclusion that you have. I would say you need to be prepared to be an open book about it. And that will make your process at the end of the day, the most likely to be successful. You need to allow time for the development of the relationship. And obviously get board buy-in from your volunteer board of directors or your paid board of directors, whichever you have, or your owners. In our case, there are no owners, but really that communication of the process, letting people feel like they have a voice in in asking questions or expressing challenges, allowing for the process to go through and having buy-in from the board of directors.
0: Thank you so much. Michelle, to wrap things up, I know that there's some listeners who are going to want to reach out to you and ask you for some tips and pick your brain on what you're doing so well at Woodland Pond, where's the best place for listeners to find you online?
1: Well, I have a bio on our website, so I can give you my website and you can link that to there. But really my favorite way to connect with people is actually my email address. I do give it out freely and um, I'm always available to people. I always feel like we shouldn't be in competition. We should be raising the industry up together. And obviously, as you can hear, once I get going on this stuff, I could talk for a long time. So it's always best for people to just reach out to me directly and I'll connect with them. So I can give you my email address.
0: Great, I'll put those in the show notes. Thank you, Michelle, for joining LTC Heroes. And I look forward to connecting with you and staying in touch with you in the future.
1: Thanks so much. It's been great to talk today.
0: Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.